I'm here once again pondering how to present this information, how to submit once again to the language of flavor and to lead your ears down this path towards the truth, cooked in the real. I'm here once again asking the right questions. Yet still, I'm conflicted and confused on why I've been put in front of the answers. Because I feel the pull to put these puzzle pieces in place for you. I am so intrigued. Because for the first time in a long while, I'm stunned. It's gotten heavier here than I expected. Because the further I've gone down this path, the more I realize that we've had our recipe books burned. So much of our history has been erased, and so much knowledge concerning our true powers have been lost in time. But why? More often than not, the reason appears to wear the mask of control. But who's making these decisions? I do not know. I'm diving into food, flavor, and sensation, yet I'm getting into waters I didn't aim to be in. But my compass is not broken, for it is stronger than ever. And the world is going in a very peculiar direction. And the ability to sustain ourselves is under attack. Our self-sufficiency, our cooking, our communication skills and survival knowledge are being stripped away one by one. And I see it. And I see you through the screens. I see the ease. I see the painted mirage that is being plastered in front of our eyes, and I am present within the debauchery. So open your eyes and choose the truth. Welcome to Flavor Quest. This week we discuss what caused our brain to double in size at the rate that defied Mother Nature's historical pace. What skewed the track of our evolution and what furthermore supports my claim that we're here today solely due to our discovery in food and flavor. And they didn't teach us about the importance of cooking because the truth is dangerous and the truth shall set you free. My name is Leon and this is the hidden chapter. We are walking this earth today in search of our purpose. In fact, we ask those around us for insight and will blindly follow in the footsteps of our idols in hopes that one day we can achieve what we have thought happiness to look like. But we didn't evolve to chase fame. We evolved to eat. And that's it. I kind of want to leave a cliffhanger there, but I need to give some context to make this stick. So here we go. As we measure brain and body size in the primate kingdom, we found obvious correlations between caloric intakes, body, brain size, and the hours spent eating. When we observe the brain-to-body ratio of a silverback gorilla, it makes itself clear that I won't be getting that large anytime soon. And the truth lies in the 10 hours a day that the primate searches and spends chewing their food. Fibrous, uncooked vegetation takes longer to masticate and requires energy and more fuel to do so. So there is a limit that can be naturally reached. Animals that have genetic mutations and grow larger than that point do not have the caloric intake to support that larger physique. Since there are only so many hours in the day, 
a primate can only become so big. The gorilla would have to eat for like 20 hours a day to support their massive size and a, quote, larger brain if they were able to grow one. Basically, King Kong never existed. And if he did, he'd be stupid. <laughs> but we exist. And we're a miracle of evolution. No, I'm not living with grandiose ideas or narcissistic morales, but hear me out. Because in 1.8 million years, a mere blip in time in our grand history, we have doubled our brain size. We have grown abilities and built new connections in our cerebral network that have engorged our net worth as a species. But what was it from? It was from the cooking. And it was from the fire. And it's been the key to unlocking the nutrients around us everywhere. And what led to a split in the evolutionary roadmap. It was this shortcut that cut through millions of years and that left us with the cognitive functions that we correlate to being human and which epitomize consciousness as we know it. But why are we running now? The moment we started to use fire to process our spices, food, dry our meat, saute our vegetables and boil our damn potatoes, the metabolic value of our sustenance jumped from 30 to 100%. When we heat our food, we can then process all of the materials that we cook, all thanks to the fire. Now you see why cooking is so important. Let me tell you this. If you really want to follow the paleo diet, go ahead and cut out fire. Now let's see how much fun you'll have eating with no flavor and 70% less nutritional value. The idea of that diet is to remove processed foods and additives, not flavor and happiness. So if we gave a silverback gorilla the diet of a competitive weightlifter today, they would be utterly massive. But 10,000 calories a day doesn't happen in nature. But we made that jump. We are consciousness experiencing that jump every day. And now... The jump is getting larger and larger, and I can only speak for myself, but I'm getting nervous as we learn these new abilities. Maybe we need to eat some bamboo and slow our roll, but we get pretty bored of that taste very quickly, wouldn't we? Well, speaking of that, taste actually is a lot cooler than I thought it would be too. Taste is also why we're here. I think after mixing flavors by accident, we got bored of the salads. And then, well, mixing and matching had to have been on purpose. And I guess that's a culinary evolution. A common fruit fly, scientifically called the drosophila, is derived from the Greek word drosos, meaning do-loving. It's ironic because in its simplicity, this species hides quite a bit of historical taste relevance. Check it out. Males in this family can't tell a female apart from another brute in any way other than by licking each other. Taste is how they understand being different. They are different, therefore they are one. Do loving, therefore, baby, I need to say that I love do. I'm sorry. Anyways, <laughs> in many vertebrates, taste, one more time, in many vertebrates, Taste is used for social communications, usually by licking each other's genitals or engaging in physical contact to deliver compounds to the vemoronasal organ. 
a specialized chemosensory pit in the palate or nasal septum that responds to social communication cues. Our sense of smell as a species and our ability to communicate non-verbally with these compounds more or less been thought to have been outbred from our world of understanding. But human smell capabilities will vary greatly. For example, there is a condition called hyperosmia. And when you're given this complicated gift, you're often called a super smeller. These are people who have heightened senses for smells and are usually more sensitive towards either very pleasant or very putrid aromas. So condition for some, beautiful lifestyle for others, both subjective. The idea of a super taster is more complicated because our tongue isn't simple in any sense. And in many ways, it's another cerebral-esque organ strapped between our jaws for safekeeping and good measure. The tongue is controlled by five extrinsic muscles that help to move it around the palate and four intrinsic muscles that allow the tongue to freely change shapes. We can talk and communicate with it and with its guidance, we can taste and sense the world around us. I've previously mentioned that the definition of a seasoning is being an additive that changes how we perceive the flavors that we ingest like a lens in your mouth that allows us to taste and see differently. But as of today, the definition of seasoning has grown to encompass not an additive, but the concentrated chemical compound itself that occurs around us naturally. Seasoning is to the body as reality is to consciousness. When we add them to our foods, we feel pleasure. We are celebrating the universe when we season with intention. So the definition of a seasoning is now more clear. It's not changing how you perceive, but literally introducing the compounds that you've evolved to decipher between naturally. Seasoning your food returns you to the primal states of joy and happiness. Seasoning celebrates our humanity and seasoning celebrates our consciousness too. And it gave us the ability to tell the difference between poisonous and deliciousness. But nothing was possible without our tongues. As we dissolve food with our saliva in the oral cavity, the nutrient and toxin qualities are analyzed. Simple carbohydrates are experienced as sweet. Amino acids like glutamate, aspartate, and selected ribonucleic acids are experienced as savory or umami. Sodium salts are experienced as salty. Acids are experienced as sour. And many toxic compounds are experienced as bitter. Actually, the sets of compounds that elicit the bitter taste are the largest group and the most structurally diverse. Humans can possess about 25 functional bitter receptor genes. Now, this had to have been derived from the testing of the lethal varietals that we had the fortune of trying earlier on. Seasonings in their natural state are very different from what they are today. Before, they were more gentle and much more subtle. Now, as we have grown to love the idea of more, they celebrate surplus and concentration. For example, glutamic acid was discovered and identified in 1866 by the German chemist Karl Heinrich Rittenhausen. Cool, but I think you may know this and it's more familiar name. 
monosodium glutamate, or MSG. Yeah, this is finally happening. What is MSG, you ask? Well, essentially it's a salt and a seasoning powder that's been introduced to the global supply chain. MSG was first prepared and produced in 1908 by Japanese biochemist Kikunai Ikeda, who was trying to isolate and duplicate the savory taste of kombu, an edible seaweed used as a base for many Japanese soups. MSG is an example of the most common amino acid in the natural world, glutamate. In fact, our tongues are built to be able to recognize its presence. It's in everything from seaweed, tomatoes, and cheeses. And it's not unhealthy, nor is it dangerous to your body at all. The common idea that there can be such a thing as MSG-induced illness is the leftover propaganda from a scientist named Dr. Robert Holman Kwok, who wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, where he coined the term Chinese restaurant syndrome and blamed his bad choice in restaurants and his inability to recognize poorly prepared food with xenophobic sentiment and his hypernatremia. That sickness from really high sodium. And yes, MSG is a form of sodium, but MSG is not to blame here. For crying out loud, leave it alone. It just makes things more delicious. It's an ingredient. Since Quark's paper, there's been a mountain of conversation and publicity using the letters social residue that's left parts of the world with bad taste towards MSG on their tongues. But it has been debunked time and time again that MSG has any negative health effects whatsoever. In double-blind, controlled, and gift-wrapped scientific studies, nothing. It's on every shelf in the grocery store and in every packaged umami-rich snack food too. MSG goes by many names, 15 to be exact. And each of its pseudonyms litter back-label ingredient lists all around the world. So to those who claim that you can tell when your food contains MSG, you can't. And I'm not sorry to say that you sound like a racist prick when you ask the kind waiter in the Chinese restaurant if they use MSG in their food. The answer is yes. <laughs> so in a public confession before God, let the people know that I and many Many, many, many other chefs have lied to their customers by feeding them MSG called by a different name. Oh, no, I definitely don't add any of that. Strike me down, flavor gods, for I've sinned. Sin by not adding more. I love MSG. And as a matter of fact, I love salt, sugar, fat, sour, spicy, and all shades of flavor. I am no flavor racist. In fact, I'm an educated schmuck who enjoys nice things. When it comes to the reality that cooking on your own and cooking your own food creates a closed chain of pleasure and a celebration of consciousness as we know it, well, I'm very well versed. Pleasuring yourself doesn't have to be playing with your bits downstairs. How about you go and make a tasty breakfast instead? And definitely put down the bowl of sweet processed animal feed. The further I saute these onions in extra virgin reality, the more I start to see the sad truth that we're heading in a direction where no one can make themselves dinner, let alone fry themselves an egg correctly. So I've traveled through the food culture gateway to reach your headphones. 
and know that the journey through the wires in the electronic world was painful, but I had to do it. I'm here to tell you that it's going to be okay. More importantly, know that they are turning up the heat. So I guess it's time to get cooking. Take out your culinary toolkit. For today, I reward you with your chef's knife, the most important tool yet. A Damascus steel blade forged on the apex of the Spice Mountains where flavor has been rumored to originate. Its color is obsidian black with a profound charcoal depth to it. Layer upon layer forms a blade that can cut through all ties to your ideas of what flavor was. It has the same characters etched in its metal tang as the ones on the precipice of the food culture gateway. This is not like any other blade you've seen before. Its handle was built to your specifications. For I passed them forwards to the artisans and metal workers hidden in the mountain forges where it was made. Imagine its weight and its perfect balance in your hand. It was made for you to wield. The kitchen and the fire waits for your presence, patiently. From error to error, one discovers the entire truth. Sigmund Freud. My name is Leon, and this is Flavor Quest.